This is Restoring Dignity, The Politics of Too Hard. I'm John Campbell. In 2017, on the day Jacinda Ardern was sworn in as Prime Minister for the first time, I interviewed her for RNZ's Checkpoint programme. She was, as political leaders can be, when aspiration and realisation haven't yet been separated by the weight of government, almost luminescent. The yes-we-can phase before we can gets dulled by what Peter Davis called electability. Four and a half years on, the parts of that interview I remember most vividly are when the incoming Prime Minister declared this luminescence would reach some of our darkest corners. Yes, she did say I wanted to feel like we're a government that's truly focused on everybody, which is the kind of forest gumpism politicians pluck from the chocolate box when aiming for anodyne centrism. But Jacinda Ardern went further, and when she did, her words contained the hope of transformation. I also want this government to feel different. I want people to feel that it's open, that it's listening, and that it's going to bring kindness back. She went on. I know that will sound curious, but to me, if people see they have an empathetic government, I think they'll truly understand that when we're making hard calls, we're doing it with the right focus in mind. And then she said it's not about just preserving people's political careers. It's not about power. It's about being in a position to make a difference to people who need it most. The feedback from the audience was something approaching a kind of elation. Empathy? Making hard calls with the right focus in mind? A desire to make a difference to the people who need it most? Yes, people said over and over again. Yes. In 2015, only days before Campbell Live was taken off air, we did a series of stories to accompany that year's budget. We visited low-income homes, some of them in Otara, around Alexander Crescent, in the orbit of the Clyde Road Supret. In one home, Dad started early as a storeman and Mum had part-time work at either end of the day, finishing with a late-night job as a cleaner in town. It was a home where, despite their considerable efforts, life was still tough. I asked the mother how often she took her children to the movies. It was a ridiculous question, but by that stage, the Campbell Live team had done story after story on child poverty. We'd done our famous classroom lunchbox comparison, Decile 1 schools, Decile 10 schools, and lunchbox day fundraisers had arisen from it, and we'd examined the impact of zero-hours contracts on low-income households. We'd been told by senior bosses to stop covering child poverty, and there, on the spot, I floundered about for a new way of describing the life some of our children have and some of our children don't. Mum's answer was never. Her children had never been to the movies in their lives. Standing there, I recalled our family's many trips to the movies, a commonplace treat, the ice creams, the popcorn, the takeaways picked up on the way home, and I felt a kind of shame at the privilege and ignorance my question revealed. Another day, I asked a woman on dialysis whose life seemed confined to a poorly heated and scantily furnished living room if I could look inside her fridge I still remember how very bright the emptiness was. Fridge light. There was some milk, a fish head in a bowl, a mostly drained tomato sauce bottle, a battered spread container, and half an onion set aside, but other than that, nothing. Another time, walking down a driveway to a house at the back of a subdivided section, I saw a tin garage being used as a bedroom. There was no insulation on the walls. Some of the beds were clearly for children, and one of them was covered with a Disney Frozen duvet, life imitating art. Words echo, and when they circle back to us, they've sometimes changed a little. On election night 2020, the Prime Minister spoke again of governing for every New Zealander, but amplified it, adding that it has never been more important as it is now. This time, the targeted specificity of 2017 had gone. Ardern had spoken three years earlier of making hard calls and making a difference to people who need it most did not speak of them again. 
Of course, by 2020, we'd found ourselves in a global pandemic. But the transition from the people who need it most to every New Zealander was also a rhetorical mirroring of political decisions about the massive economic stimulus being undertaken in response to COVID-19. Financial journalist Bernard Hickey wrote about this strikingly in the kaka.co.nz. He said, asset owners who have been the beneficiaries of almost all the government's direct support and central bank actions are now astoundingly more wealthy. Working families and beneficiaries who pay rents are now mostly worse off or barely treading water since the first lockdowns in March 2020. In short, Hickey argued, the government and the Reserve Bank used, and I quote, the tool of making wealthy people wealthier as a way to stimulate spending. This was a global outcome of stimulus to varying degrees. Oxfam, for example, were spectacularly appalled by one manifestation of it. And I quote Oxfam, the world's 10 richest men more than doubled their fortunes from, wait for this, 700 billion to 1.5 trillion at a rate of $15,000 per second or $1.3 billion a day during the first two years of the pandemic. But here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, the people Hickey defined as working families and beneficiaries who pay rent, precisely the people the Welfare Expert Advisory Group, WEAG, had been convened to help lift from poverty, the people who need it most, to use the Prime Minister's words from 2017, were among those who did least well out of the COVID-19 economic support and stimulus packages. In the end, and this is Bernard Hickey again, the government, quote, presided over policies that accidentally on purpose engineered the biggest transfer of wealth to asset owners from current and future renters in the history of New Zealand. Or, as University of Waikato professor Ian White wrote in The Guardian, quote, a government policy designed to respond to the global pandemic and the fear of economic recession has not just created significant wealth, but distributed it in such a concentrated way that it will change the nature of Aotearoa New Zealand for generations to come. On November 9th, 2020, three days after the special votes had finally been counted and Labour was re-elected with the unprecedented MMP tally of 65 seats, an open letter was sent to Jacinda Ardern, Grant Robertson and Social Development Minister Carmel Sepuloni. The letter was from more than 50 NGOs whose work daily exposes them to the impacts of poverty. We are calling on you to lift one of the biggest limitations on whānau and child well-being, not having enough income, the letter said. And then organisations like the Auckland City Mission, and I'm listing them because of the weight they carry and also because some have historically been ideological allies of Labour governments, Action Station, Bernardo's, Beneficiary Advisory Service, Child Poverty Action Group, that's CPAG, we'll hear more from them later, CTU, Disabled Persons Assembly, FinCap, First Union, LifeWise, Mental Health Foundation, Monte Cecilia Housing Trust, National Council of Women, New Zealand Council of Christian Social Services, NZEI, Plunkett, PPTA, PSA, Renders United, Salvation Army, Save the Children, Unite, Fano, Afina, and many more wrote before the election, the Labour Party had consistently said there's more work to be done to lift families out of poverty. You now have the mandate and opportunity to do so. Please increase income support before Christmas. I asked the Prime Minister about that letter that morning on TVNZ's breakfast programme, but she hadn't seen it yet. By 4pm that day she had, at her post-Cabinet media conference, she said, and I quote, this is not going to be an issue that can be resolved in one week or one month or indeed one term. It felt like the we can had stumbled into something less hopeful. It felt like the politics of too hard rather than of making hard calls. Compared to the hopes and aspirations of 2017, it felt like a kind of abandonment. Labour's challenge to do better and the architecture with which to do better came in 216 pages from the Welfare Expert Advisory Group, WEAG. 
It's important to remember that WEAG wasn't inherited from a previous government reluctantly. It had been convened and configured by the government itself, following a confidence and supply agreement with the Green Party that committed to, and I quote, overhaul the welfare system so that everyone has a standard of living and income that enables them to live in dignity and participate in their communities and lifts children and their families out of poverty, end quote. This was the Fenua WIAG was built on. And not only did it honour that agreement with the Greens, it was operating under specific instructions from the Labour Minister. You can see this if you go back to the Establishing Welfare Expert Advisory Group Cabinet paper from early 2018, in which Carmel Cipollone sets out, and I quote, why an overhaul of the welfare system is needed. She was really explicit Here are sections verbatim to remind us all what a shining horizon the WEAG was pointed towards. All these are quotes. Changes to the welfare system are needed to ensure people are treated with and can live in dignity, can participate in their communities, have an adequate income and standard of living. I want our welfare system to provide New Zealanders with the support they need to live in dignity and reach their potential. This government has signalled a commitment to significantly reduce child poverty. I expect the WEAG to give due consideration to income adequacy. That's the end of those quotes, but they're strong. And thus mandated and full of people for whom Sepuloni's instructions must have felt like the promise of a better future, the WEAG went to work. Their report was released by Minister Sepuloni herself on May 3rd, 2019. Tangata, Restoring Dignity to Social Security in New Zealand, the report of the Welfare Expert Advisory Group. One of the experts on the WEAG was Child Poverty Action Member for more than two decades, Dr Innes Asher, paediatrician, emeritus professor at the University of Auckland, and recipient of the New Zealand Medical Association's Chairs Award 2017 for her work examining poverty as a significant contributor to chronic ill health among children. I don't know when I first met Anastasia, but I do remember that at some time in 2008, 14 years ago now, I went to Middlemore Hospital with her. I previously interviewed her in her office at the University of Auckland, where she told me about the number of children with chronic respiratory infections, skin diseases, and other illnesses caused or exacerbated by poverty. I looked kind of incredulous or bewildered, so she invited me to accompany her to meet these children. You don't forget that. I think I felt shame that I hadn't really known about it. I know I felt, as I have so often done, the fortune juxtaposition of a few kilometres, that my own children, just a short drive up the motorway, were not getting bronchiectasis at rates higher than almost anywhere else in the developed world and were not being scarred by it for life. I always thought that shame I felt would be contagious, that if we knew about what was happening, we'd address it. We did know. We do know. And we haven't addressed it, not adequately, not yet. In 2019, Innes Asher, whose advocacy for our children has been an act of unstinting rigour, of medicine and scholarship and of love, said our rates of respiratory illnesses had been going up, not down, and reminded us again that most people diagnosed with bronchiectasis in New Zealand are babies and children under the age of five and the link between serious lung disease and poor quality housing through poverty is an important factor. This was in a media release put out by the Child Poverty Action Group, CPAG, which continued, Poverty has many adverse effects on the health of children, including contributing to very high rates of acute and chronic respiratory illness. In New Zealand, there is a tragically high incidence of bronchiectasis with rates not normally seen in other high-income countries. It's a verbatim quote from CPAG. Tragically high, yes. In August of last year, the Asthma and Respiratory Foundation of NZ released an update on its work on the impact of respiratory disease in New Zealand. In it, they observed that across the period of study between 2000 and 2019, hospitalisation rates increased for bronchiectasis, childhood bronchiolitis, 
and total respiratory disease. For bronchiectasis, mortality rates increased between 2000 and 2017. Quote, All indicators showed inequality in health by ethnic group. Pacific peoples and Māori shared the highest respiratory health burden. Inequalities in respiratory hospitalizations by socioeconomic deprivation were marked. And then a paragraph that tells us so much about the impacts of inequality on the health of our children. I quote, Childhood bronchiolitis hospitalization rates increased by nearly a half from 2000 to 2019. Pacific rates were 3.9 times higher than non-Pacific and Māori, and Māori rates 2.9 times higher. The rate for the most deprived quintile was 3.1 times the rate of the least deprived quintile. The combined effect of ethnicity and deprivation meant that Māori and Pacific children in the most deprived quintile were nearly five times as likely to be hospitalised as non-Māori and Pacific children in the wealthiest quintile. Five times more likely to be hospitalised. Health, hospitalisation, housing, deprivation, desperation, incarceration, education, life experiences, life expectancy, going to the movies or not. Inequality is a bully and the people it picks on can sometimes spend their entire lives under its weight. Tin-walled cradle to the earlier grave. As I was working on this, I came across a story in The Guardian about life expectancy in parts of the UK. It was headlined, Women in England's poorest areas die younger than in most OECD countries. And it was subheaded, Exclusive. Average life expectancy in most deprived areas is 78.7 years. Remember that figure, 78.7. Worse than the average of any OECD nation except Mexico. The article began, women in the poorest areas of England are dying earlier than the average female in almost every comparable country in the world, according to a damning analysis of life expectancy data that MPs and leading health experts have called shocking, devastating and unacceptable, end quote from The Guardian. Remember that figure, 78.7? Well, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, according to the national and sub-national period life tables for 2017-2019, released by StatsNZ in April of last year, Māori female life expectancy is 77.1 years, 18 months shorter than that shocking figure in England. 18 months shorter. There are, of course, some people who appear less shocked and devastated by that than they are by the idea of a Māori health authority to respond to it. Speaking with Moana Maniapoto in Māori Television's Te Ao programme, Christopher Luxon argued against the Māori health authority. I'm saying two systems don't work for us, right? He said, us. It's interesting to consider the us he thinks the current system is working for. There are moments when things seem poised to change. When the WEAGS report was made public three years ago now, it felt like it would be a turning point in the country's response to child poverty. It is a rigorous, intelligent and aspirational piece of work. The experts themselves were indeed expert and also deeply committed to making a difference The report was exhaustive and persuasive, and as we've seen, the mandate they received and honoured from the minister was almost strident in its advocacy of dignity. It felt transformative. It was intended to be. So was it? Before we consider that, let's turn to National. On May 7, 2019, just after the WEAG released its report, National's then leader, Simon Bridges, asked the first parliamentary oral question of the day. Does she stand by all her government statements, policies and actions? He asked pro forma. Ardern said yes, pro forma. Then Bridges went on. How many of the 42 recommendations of the Welfare Working Group report will the government adopt? 
The answer was the beginning of what's become a long and ongoing haze of obfuscation by the Prime Minister when being questioned about the WEAG's 42 recommendations. And we'll get back to this. But it's the question I'm interested in here. As much as it might appear to be the case, an optimist could have been forgiven for feeling a little bit hopeful, Bridges wasn't advocating for as many of the 42 recommendations as possible to be adopted. No, the national leader had begun by latching on to recommendation 11, remove some obligations and sanctions, for example, sanctions for not naming the other parent. In short, Bridges had found an area in which the report was recommending the social welfare system become less punitive, with some financial sanctions being removed, and asking, and I quote, isn't an obligation without a penalty entirely meaningless? Author and researcher Max Rashbrook, writing for RNZ, and identifying, and I quote, the toxic inconsistency of recent welfare policy, end quote, had picked up on the removal of sanctions as a cause for celebration. Again, I quote Max Rashbrook, the battles over welfare are in large part a dispute about whether people who find themselves relying on social security are principally in need of punishment or support. The Welfare Expert Advisory Group's report released yesterday is an urgent and much-needed call for a strong shift towards the latter. Max Rashbrook, the latter being support, of course. And he was right in the way that Max Rashbrook's writing on inequality consistently blends insight, rigour and empathy. His use of the word toxic was also well-advised. The WEAG report used it when describing the impact of a regime that routinely used financial sanctions, including against women who wouldn't name the father of a child. This is from WEAG, this quote. The current benefit system is based on conditionality and sanctions. We heard overwhelmingly through our consultation that such a system diminishes trust, causes anger and resentment, and contributes to toxic levels of stress. WEAG continued, There is little evidence in support of using obligations and sanctions, as in the current system, to change behaviour. Rather, there is research indicating that they compound social harm and disconnectedness. Now, I'll return to consider the number of recommendations the government has implemented, but aspects of this recommendation were immediately put into effect. In fact, on the very day the report was released, Carmel Sepuloni announced the government will scrap the discriminatory sanction that cuts income to women and their children if the name of the child's father is not declared to the government. The National argued against this when there was so much of the report they could have been advocating for, spoke of the pressure the opposition wasn't putting on the government to do better. If a good opposition makes a better government, National so often lets Labour off the hook in the area of child poverty. This vacuum, or absence, or indifference, has an interesting consequence. As I speak to people in sectors dealing with poverty, I'm repeatedly struck by a sense that whatever disappointment they feel about the difference between Labour's aspirations and Labour's delivery is tempered by their belief that a national government wouldn't have gone anywhere near so far. National's current response to poverty is perhaps loosely encapsulated in a somewhat confused media statement put out by Andrew Bailey under his title Shadow Treasurer in July of last year. Kiwi wallets are being squeezed as cost of living rises. The release was headlined, which is true, and in it, Bailey used the phrase most vulnerable three times. This is promising and speaks to the point Bernard Hickey and many others have made that our poorest have done least well out of the economic responses to the global pandemic. But Andrew Bailey's suggested response is kind of muddy. I quote, National believes in increasing incomes for all New Zealanders, not just giving handouts and adding to our nation's debt to pay for them. End quote. Handouts? What handouts did he mean? Benefits? Wage subsidies? Support for the tourism sector? Which of these would he have done without? So, how does National suggest we lift the most vulnerable, to pick up on that Andrew Bailey phrase? The best way out of poverty and dependence is through employment. Social development spokesperson Louise Upston said, 
in February of last year in a media release headlined Government Failing to Deliver for Vulnerable Kiwis. And then a year later this February, National knows the only sustainable way to make serious inroads into child poverty is to get parents off benefits and into work. Off benefits and into work. And here perhaps we begin to head towards the territory evoked by National Leader Christopher Luxon in that now somewhat infamous interview on News Talk ZB in March of this year. Christopher Luxon said... I've got to be honest to all your listeners, this is a fantastic country, this is the best country on planet Earth, but we have to determine we want to realise our maximum potential economically, socially and environmentally, and we want to be a place everyone can flourish. And then he went on, if you want to have a go and you want to make something of yourself, we don't just do bottom feeding and just focus on the bottom We focus on people who want to be positive and ambitious and aspirational and confident, right? So, Andrew Bailey talks of not just giving handouts and then vaguely of growth as a panacea and Christopher Luxon talks about bottom feeding as if that were a choice by the people Andrew Bailey has labelled our most vulnerable. There appears to be no transformative policy architecture in this. It's not even attached to policy much of the time. Just a hint of sleepwalking back to that flogged horse sense of fecklessness evoked in one way or another by everyone from Rob Muldoon to Ruth Richardson to now, it appears, Christopher Luxon. Consider Luxon on Newstalk ZB and that dichotomy he was trading in, bottom feeding versus if you want to have a go and you want to make something of yourself. And then compare that with Ruth Richardson when delivering her Mother of All Budgets speech in Parliament way back in 1991. I quote from Ruth Richardson, Real welfare is created by people and families through their own efforts. Many people will be encouraged to take greater responsibility for themselves where they had previously relied on the state. The sense is of someone obdurate, reluctant, lacking responsibility, Richardson, or ambition and aspiration, Luxon, and encouraged to bottom feed because the bottom is so generous. And yet what we know from the WEAG and from CPAG and the Salvation Army and the Auckland City Mission and from the people whose lives these are, if we make the effort to talk to them, is that, to quote the WEAG report, Living in poverty often results in long-lasting poor outcomes for benefit recipients, their children, families and whānau, and society. More quote. Evidence is strong of the negative effects that poverty has on a wide range of children's outcomes. Evidence is also emerging of poverty's negative impacts on the mental health of people of all ages. More quote. Currently, being on a benefit and or in poverty often has a detrimental long-term impact on well-being for adults and children. End quote. We know this, don't we? In his book, Too Much Money, Max Rashbrook, drawing in part from the work of academic Dr. Damon Salesa, writes about these accumulating disadvantages in Celeste's words, and their almost exponential effect. Rashbrook cites the Auckland City Mission's Family 100 project and how it, quote, lays bare the tangle of forces that, like rainforest jungle creepers, hold back households doing their utmost to escape poverty. Debts, the justice system, inadequate housing, precarious employment, poor health, food insecurity, all combine, in the words of the project's final report, to keep people trapped in a constant state of financial hardship. Laura O'Connell-Rapieta has described the lived experience of this very powerfully in the spin-off. I quote, I remember the difficulties my mum faced trying to buy us a dehumidifier for our mouldy and damp West Auckland home. I remember when her card declined and the shop worker announced it loudly to embarrass her, probably because she was Māori, a woman, and poor. This is the reality for families trying to scrape by on low incomes in an era of high housing and food costs. Too many parents are under-resourced and overstressed. As long as we are willing to keep parents trapped in poverty, there will continue to be kids 
in poverty too. End quote. These would be the bottom-feeding kids, presumably lacking ambition, aspiration and personal responsibility. If only they'd get up from under their frozen duvets, leave their bedrooms and tin garages and get a job. National sometimes appears stranded here between incoming and outgoing tides, between understanding, like Andrew Bailey's Most Vulnerable, or Louise Upston's acknowledgements of the magnitude of child poverty, and a kind of reflexive tribal belief that not much more needs to be done than getting the bottom feeders into work. But the WEAG report tells us something every politician in this country ought to be able to recite by heart And I quote, people receiving a benefit because they have a health condition or disability or care for a person with a health condition or disability make up 53% of all working age benefit recipients. 53%. And even with people able to fulfill Ruth Richardson's exhortation to take greater responsibility for themselves or Christopher Luxon's encouragement to be positive and ambitious and aspirational and confident, National seems uncertain about how big their reward should be. Remember Andrew Bailey's assertion National believes in increasing incomes for all New Zealanders? Like Christopher Luxon's use of us, Bailey's all is worth considering here. Through 2020, 2021 and 2022, National's messaging around increases to the minimum wage has been mixed at best. National has committed to not going ahead with minimum wage increases, said Todd McClay in September 2020. Minimum wage hike isn't what the economy needs, McClay himself repeated two months later. Minimum wage increases will see businesses close. It's disappointing that the government will be pressing ahead with the minimum wage increase, said Scott Simpson, this time in March 2021. I'm a big fan of increasing minimum wages, but you do it when your economy is growing around 3 to 4%, so you can sustain it, Christopher Luxon said in December of last year. And then, almost bizarrely, talking to stuff in February of this year, Luxon was unable to say where National stood on this April's increase to the minimum wage. Asked if National opposed or supported the latest boost in that interview with stuff, Luxon wouldn't give a yes or no answer. Now, these are very low incomes we're talking about. When Todd McClay was saying National has committed to not going ahead with minimum wage increases, and when Scott Simpson was saying it is disappointing that the government will be pressing ahead with the minimum wage increase, the minimum wage was $18.90 an hour. Again, language is revealing the assumption that how you see the world is universal. When Scott Simpson called the minimum wage increase disappointing, who was it disappointing for? Not for the people on it, surely. And how exactly does opposing an increase for people earning $18.90 an hour honour Andrew Bailey's assertion that, remember the quote, national believes in increasing incomes for all New Zealanders? All of this matters when your message is that aspiration and ambition has its reward I believe in a New Zealand that rewards hard work, Christopher Luxon said in his first speech as National Party leader. And don't we all? And isn't that the point? If it looks like you're reluctant to give that reward to some, and if your tax policy is significantly more rewarding to those on high incomes than on low, it's almost as if you're not listening to yourselves talk. Or your idea of all is gleaned by looking around the Koru Club. Which brings us back to the government, for whom reducing child poverty was so important. The Prime Minister made herself the minister of it, and the WEAG was created to tell us how best to address it. Has the WEAG report been transformative? Has the government made, quote, a difference to people who need it most? Well, it depends in part on who you ask. We can see this kind of perception bias in the annual efforts to interpret the Stats New Zealand child poverty measures. This year, on exactly the same day, February 24, 
The Prime Minister hailed the figures triumphantly. Government lifts 66,500 children out of poverty, while National headlined their release, Government Failing on Child Poverty. Upston then went on to attack the Child Poverty Reduction Minister herself. Reducing child poverty was Jacinda Ardern's stated reason for becoming a politician, but once again it's all spin and no delivery, end quote. Spin. Last year, Child Poverty Action Group, CPAG, responded to the spin by digging beneath it. And the report that arose from this digging is an essential read. It's called Children Can't Live on Promises, a 2021 stock take of implementation of the Welfare Expert Advisory Group's 2019 recommendations. Yep, we're looking at the recommendations now. The 100-page CPAG document analyses the government's response to the WEAG report in considerable detail. And fascinatingly, CPAG did this in response to something the Prime Minister herself had said. Quote, In the lead-up to the 2020 election, the Prime Minister claimed that 22 recommendations had been implemented. Actually, she said that on the 2020 TVNZ Leaders' Debate in September of that year. I was hosting the debate and I remember her saying it. CPAG was concerned by what appeared to be an overstatement of progress that was at odds with the experiences that frontline service providers and people with lived experience of the system were reporting. So CPAG initiated an independent analysis of the government's response to the recommendations of WEAG. Hearing the Prime Minister's spin, CPAG, non-aligned, and driven entirely by a commitment to addressing child poverty, set out to examine the extent of the government's delivery. The CPAG authors were Caitlin newelt Cairns, M.A. Ons, CPAG researcher, Innes Asher, who we met before, of course, and Alan Johnson now. Alan's a principal analyst these days at the Ministry for the Environment, but he was previously senior social policy analyst at the Salvation Army Social Policy and Parliamentary Unit and, this is important, author of the Salvation Army State of the Nation reports for a decade from 2009 to 2019. And what did they find? Well, this is part of their conclusion. Quote, CPAG was concerned by a lack of progress when we wrote our inaugural report in November 2020 and we are even more concerned now in November 2021 these delays are exacerbating growing rates of family and whānau hardship. While COVID-19 has undoubtedly consumed immense government resources, deep poverty poses a significant challenge to the efficacy of our national COVID-19 response and the pandemic has only provided more impetus for a fundamental reset of our broken social safety net. Making modest, piecemeal changes is not reform, the government's resort to patchy changes means that many on the ground, both recipients of welfare support and those supporting families and whānau navigating the system, are not seeing much measurable difference in their experience of engaging with the welfare system. I continue the quote. As one welfare advocate put it, changes, if they've made changes, it's had little impact. End quote. Remember, that's written by the Child Poverty Action Group, not a political opponent trying to score points. Still, there is a tribal response and confusion because the government says one thing, its critics say another, and those on the grounds working in the sector say something in between, and this can vary markedly. Take the Prime Minister's media release, which I referred to before, that government lifts 66,500 children out of poverty, released in February of this year, in which the PM said figures released today by Stats New Zealand show all nine child poverty measures continuing to trend downwards, resulting in 66,500 children being lifted out of poverty. That's good, obviously. In part, the Prime Minister tells us this is due to the benefit increases announced in the 2021 budget. Budget 21 lifted rates by between $32 and $55 per adult by April 2022, the PM reminds us, in line with a key recommendation from the Welfare Expert Advisory Group. End the PM's quote. But CPAG's response to the increased benefit rates, and remember CPAG's Innes Asher was also on the WEAG, is quite different, so I quote from them. 
The government claims that by April 2022, benefit levels will match 2019 WEAG recommendations. However, WEAG's benefit rates were presented to government in February 2019 as part of a recommended minimum immediate first step, which also included wage indexation and working for families tax credit increases for families. While a welcome step towards income adequacy, Budget 2021's benefit increases will not meet WEAG recommendations for many benefit recipients when wage inflation since the release of WEAG's report is accounted for. End quote. In short, this time from CPAG, quote, incomes are still not livable. The government's vision and WEAG's goal to reach incomes that are livable for all family and whānau will not be achieved with current policies. While benefit increases will reduce weekly deficits, they are not enough to secure meaningful participation in the community. End CPAG quote. Want more? Well, here's the Salvation Army responding to the same benefit increases. Quote, we are sceptical as to whether this will in reality make a material difference to those who are really struggling with the rapidly rising cost of living. While we are pleased this government has seen the need to put more money in the pockets of the poorest, this in no way goes far enough. That's the sallies. That's seven words only. But what a big meaning this in no way goes far enough has and on it goes. A month ago, the Fairer Future Collaboration, which includes all connection against poverty, AAAP, Auckland City Mission, Barnardos, Beneficiary Action, Citizens Advice, First Union, Monte Cecilia, PSA, Renders United, Save the Children, and many more, released figures showing, and I quote, that increases to benefits on the 1st of April this year, they're the increases we just had, will still leave families locked in poverty. And the Fair of Future collaboration goes further. Again, I quote, Our update of the Welfare Expert Advisory Group's modelling on what level of income is needed to meet basic costs shows the majority of people receiving income support still don't have nearly enough to live on even after the April 2022 income support increases came into effect. Who said that? Well, Max Harris a spokesperson for Fair of Future. And yes, that is the Max Harris, Master of Public Policy and Bachelor of Civil Law at the University of Oxford, author of the New Zealand Project and advocate for us doing much better. I'm name dropping here, aren't I? But the names are important. When Max Harris says, quote, people receiving income support still don't have nearly enough to live on, when AAAP's Brooke Stanley Powell says, quote, the much-vaunted income support increases will be too little too late for most people, end quote. When Inasasha, when CPAG, when the Salvation Army, when WEAG members, when the organisations that make up the Fairer Future collaboration and on and on and on are all saying more or less the same thing, surely that must have some meaning. And if they're wrong, or if they're overstating things, how do you explain these two figures? A total of 647,000 hardship assistance payments with $238 million were provided during the March 2022 quarter. That's from the most recent Ministry of Social Development Benefit Fact Sheets Snapshot. And $238 million in a quarter is the single biggest quarterly hardship assistance payout by dollar value in this country's history. Now, hardship assistance includes special needs grants, benefit advances, and recoverable assistance payments. What are the two biggest reasons for people needing and receiving special needs grants? I suspect you can guess. Food and emergency housing. It's important to acknowledge this government has made it easier to get these grants. This is part of the less punitive culture Max Rashbrook was writing about. We heard from him earlier. And it's something the minister herself is proud of. I quote from Carmel Sepuloni. Cabinet has agreed to make it easier for low-income workers to receive assistance for items such as food and other emergency costs, she said in October of last year. Providing the money when it's needed is a very good thing. 
But the need for the money, even after benefits and minimum wages have increased, is a striking reflection of that CPAG assessment incomes are still not livable. This is all so confusing. When Carmel Sepuloni told us as recently as the beginning of April, quote, MSD modelling shows that compared to 2017 policy settings, our government's significant lifts to main benefits will see around 364,000 beneficiaries better off by an average of $109 per week, increasing to $133 per week during the 2022 winter period. That's true. But, and this is such a big but, when we return again to the question I've been teasing throughout this essay, the answer isn't quite what the government claims. So, how many of the WEAG's recommendations have been fully implemented by the government that asked for them? None. None, said CPAG in November 2020. Quote, none of the 42 key recommendations made by the Welfare Expert Advisory Group in February 2019 have been fully implemented. End quote. None, said Auckland Action Against Poverty in May 2021. Quote, it's been two years since the Welfare Expert Advisory Group released their report, and in that period, none of the full 42 recommendations have been implemented by this Labour government, end quote. None, said CPAG in December 2021, quote, government yet to fully implement a single key WEAG recommendation nearly three years on, end quote. None. This is not to say that benefit increases aren't welcome, that the removal of punitive and degrading sanctions isn't welcome, that improving poverty measures aren't welcome. This is not to say that increases to the minimum wage from $15.75 an hour in 2017 to $21.20 now aren't welcome. They are. And Nationals' opposition to them is a profound contradiction of their insistence that employment is the pathway out of poverty. But it is to say that a government with an unprecedented majority in an MMP parliament, that a government that wanted, quote, to make a difference to the people who need it most, that a government capable of creating against all odds in 2020, a sense that if we stood together, a team of five million, we could unite to have fewer COVID-19 deaths and hospitalizations per capita than almost every other country in the world, that government hasn't expended the same leadership and political capital on lifting our most vulnerable out of poverty. Of course, the pandemic factors beyond our control, etc., 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 yes. But COVID-19, in combination with the popular mandate from the 2020 election, gave the government opportunity as well as challenges. And with opportunity and the capacity and the mandate and the leadership, we made decisions that have benefited some much more than others. Let's return to Bernard Hickey and his work analysing COVID's winners and losers. Quote, Official figures show the stark explosion in inequality since the onset of COVID as the government's interventions to print $58 billion and give $20 billion in cash to business owners helped make owners of homes and businesses $952 billion richer since December 2019. Continuing Bernard Hickey. Meanwhile, renters have missed out on that asset growth and have been hammered with real-wage deflation and rents rising faster than incomes. The poorest are now $400 million more in debt and need twice as many food parcels as before COVID. End quote. The poorest include children. CPAG and Children Can't Live on Promises. Remember, that's their 2021 stock take of the implementation of the WEAG's recommendations. Remind us, and I quote, Overall effects of poverty are worst for children. Child development is adversely affected by poverty, and poverty can lead to detrimental effects for an entire life. Continue quote. 
Children are more likely to experience poverty. Children are overrepresented among those in deprived households. Continue quote, children don't get a say. Decisions affecting children are made without their input. Only adults can vote for parliamentary representation. End quote. Children don't get a say, but we do. The next election is roughly 18 months away. It's not too late for National to stand for something beyond tea towel homilies and to draft policy that rewards hard work for low-income people too, creates genuine and achievable pathways and reflects the fact that a childhood in desperate poverty makes it so much less likely you can genuinely participate or feel, to quote their leader, positive and ambitious and aspirational and confident. It's not too late for Labour to achieve the things they said they were going to achieve, things they know they should achieve, things the WEAG has identified so clearly, things that matter. CPAG again, quote, Benefit increases have been an important welcome step, but a modest one. These increases alone are insufficient to provide adequate income for all families within the welfare system, end quote. Of course, steps are better than not stepping, but they're not transformative. I think of the people queuing outside work and income offices in winter to get money to ensure their power isn't turned off. I think of children going to school early to get some breakfast. I think of hospitalisation rates for the respiratory illnesses of poverty and the house with the empty fridge and the children who have never been to the movies and the children sleeping in the tin garage and the little boy I spoke to at a Northland school eating a community-provided lunch, hot spaghetti with tomato sauce, whose families sometimes have a choice between bills and rent and food. He looked at me and said, it's really delicious. And then he smiled so gratefully and wide and said, I feel all warm inside. <laughs> 